European Union plans mission to Myanmar, also known as Burma. Last week, the Czech Republic also sent an official delegation to Burma, led by Deputy Foreign Minister Jiri Sittler, who met with the country's officials and pro-democracy associates of Dong San Suu Kyi. We all know how serious and dreadful the current situation is in Myanmar. For those of us outside the country, it can be difficult to know how to help. Of course, there are significant ongoing needs across all segments of Burmese society. For those who are able to give financially, any donations given to our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, will immediately be placed towards helping those being impacted by the coup. Just go to insightmyanmar.org donation to contribute today. Or stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more options. Thank you for your consideration. And now let's get into the interview that follows. Spirit House 4. Sibling follows sibling into Thorn Forest. Girl holds stick of incense, tip a glow. 37 knots await atop Mount Popa. Volcanic relics, sister brother, blue-throated barbets. Lightning clue, nest lands on soft earth, entwined vines, distant blaze, candlewick floating in bowl of oil. This poem is from Storage Unit for the Spirit House on Omnidon by Ma Shen For this episode of Insight Myanmar podcast, we're really privileged to be joined by Yuri Sittler from the Czech Republic. He is the former Czech ambassador to Myanmar, as well as a number of other diplomatic posts that he's held, which we'll get into, as well as his involvement in uh, in Myanmar over the past 20, 30 years. Uh, there's a lot to tell and share and learn from there. So Yuri, thanks so much for taking the time to join us and talk about Myanmar here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, let's get first to a little bit about who you are and where you come from and your diplomatic career. Um, before we get into Myanmar, can you uh, can you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and your background? 
Uh, hey, uh, uh, before 1989, also uh, uh, before the Velvet Revolution, I was uh, never thinking about like actually joining the government or working for the government because I could imagine working for the communist government. So I studied uh, history and uh, I wanted to be a historian dealing with uh, like ancient or medieval uh, uh, history so in order not to be let's say in, in order not to be uh, dealing with any uh, let's say issues where ideology played the main uh, role so uh, after 1989 I was like uh, very happy uh, because of the change uh, the Velvet Revolution uh, meant that uh, finally uh, like uh, our fates, uh, fates of the Czech citizens, uh, were in our own hands. So uh, I, I first I wanted to study abroad a little bit. So I went to Germany and uh, to Italy, and I uh, studied there. And when I came back, um, uh, uh, two at the end of nineteen ninety two, beginning of nineteen ninety three, I got the offer from the office of President Václav Havel to. Uh, join the uh, president's uh, team. At that time, uh, they were searching for people who had some like international experience, who spoke some languages, but at the same time, who were not compromised uh, uh, by like being members of the Communist Party or working with the former uh, regime. So I actually. Uh, uh, because I never considered actually working for the government before, so I hesitated, but then I decided, okay, I will try it for a couple of months, and here I am after 30 years. Mm, yeah, great. Thanks for that. Thanks for sharing a bit about your background and your career, how you got involved in uh, in, in the work you're doing. Uh, take us now through some of the posts that you held, and once you got into the Foreign Service in Czech Republic, what positions you held and what kind of work you did uh, outside of Myanmar before we get to the topic of that country. So, uh from 1993 to 1997, I was on the team of uh, President uh, Havel, and uh, I was dealing with uh, press issues and then with uh, uh, foreign policy uh, issues. And uh, already at that time, I was kind of my time or my responsibilities were a little bit uh, like uh, split between, say, Central Europe, neighboring countries, and uh, Asia. Uh, I uh, studied uh, just for a few months, but I studied Thai at the School of Oriental and African Studies. So, in the eyes of my colleagues in the president's office, it made me an Asia expert, which I didn't feel like, but then I kind of uh, tried to do uh, my best. And uh, uh, after 1998, when I switched to the uh, uh, foreign ministry uh, from from the presidential office. Uh, I was uh, mainly my main task in the foreign ministry was uh, negotiating uh, compensation for the Second World War with uh, Germany. So that was uh, quite a uh, quite a task. I was relatively young, and my counterpart in Germany was uh, uh, like elder statesman, former minister of finance, uh, Count. Uh, 
Labsdorf, uh, so it was uh, very challenging um, negotiations uh, for me to have such an experienced counterpart. But the, at the end, we achieved compensation for about uh, eighty thousand of our uh, citizens. And after that, uh, I was rather. Uh, it was really several years I spent with this issue, and uh, then uh, I was actually offered ambassadorship as a kind of reward, a little bit in. Uh, Bangkok. So my, let's say, my Asian expertise came to life again. And from Bangkok, uh, I was uh, accredited also to Burma, Myanmar, to Cambodia and to uh, Laos. So, uh, and since uh, President Havel, who was still in office uh, at, at the time, it was uh, in the year 2000, uh, one when I got appointed, he was very much interested in all things uh, Burma. Uh, so, a um, uh, very significant part of my job from Bangkok was the support to the Burmese democratic uh, forces, uh, both in uh, Yangon, uh, but also in the ethnic areas. Uh, and, and after that, uh, after uh, uh, coming back from uh, Asia, I was uh, director for Asia for uh, some time in the Minister of Foreign Affairs. So I was I continued to uh, to uh, deal with also Burma related uh, issues. But then I became ambassador to uh, Romania, later to Sweden, and now I'm in Vienna as ambassador to Austria. Mm, wonderful. But, but wonderful I kind thing. of never, in, uh, never interrupted. Uh, I, I never ceased to have uh, contacts with my friends in Burma, with uh, exiles in uh, Thailand, and uh, I've, I've visited uh, the region rather frequently. And not, not, not in the last two or three years, uh, though. But that was mainly because of the pandemic, because of the travel restrictions. Thank you for that. That's that's wonderful. It's a wonderful background. And I think I want to go a bit deeper into what you bring up as this relationship between specifically the affection and concern that Havel had to Burma. I mean, this is not something that these cultures, these people, these histories, they're so different. So it's not an obvious connection that one would make that a, a, uh, a Czech uh, president coming out of uh, successive totalitarian regimes of the first the um, the Nazis and then the Soviets that he would feel such affection towards Burma and this led to this close relationship which continues today of the Czech Republic and Burma that the the the, um, the relationship they've shared with the respective democracy movements can you share a bit mm -hmm. about his relationship with Burma and how that developed in the countries forming a stronger relationship that continues through today. Uh, when when Havel was uh, elected uh, president at the end of the year 1989, at that time uh, he was uh, like one of the, uh, his name was uh, very often mentioned as a possible next uh, uh, Nobel uh, uh, Peace uh, Prize uh, laureate. Uh, however, uh, uh, in his opinion, he was, I mean, the, in, in his view, the Velvet Revolution was uh, successful. Uh, Czechoslovakia at the time, later Czech Republic, was uh, kind of transforming itself into a 
democratic uh, country uh, anchored uh, in the uh, in in the west and uh, also uh, with, later with the nato membership uh, internationally uh, secure uh, and uh, his uh, idea at that time was that um, because the czech dissidents they were helped in 1970s 1980s by uh, others uh, uh, they were supported by international NGOs by by uh, courageous uh, foreign um, politicians like Dutch politicians French politicians so his idea was now when we uh, actually uh, uh, established democracy in our country we should actually do the same uh, to uh, others so human rights promotion was one one of the uh, like uh, anchors or one, one of the uh, uh, main guidelines for our uh, foreign policy which he at the time uh, designed and in uh, 1990 uh, one of uh, Václav Havel's collaborators one of his aides Stanislav Slavitsky happened to travel to Japan where he met a group of uh, Burmese exiles who asked actually him for Havel's support for uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's Nobel Peace Prize nomination. And uh, around the same time, Havel was contacted by uh, Suu Kyi's uh, husband, Malto Eris, who asked for the same. So he decided to formally uh, nominate her. He established contacts with uh, a group of uh, US congressmen and with the committee of Professor Finnis at the time, the actress uh, Liv Ullman, who were also campaigning for, for the Nobel uh, Peace Prize for Aung San Suu Kyi. They joined forces and they finally uh, succeeded. So this was like the, the beginning of the of the uh, uh, relationship, which then later continued with um, actually very numerous Havel's initiatives to uh, assist uh, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, and um, uh, there was like a uh, appeal of of the uh, international uh, pen club, or he organized the the letter of the of the uh, Nobel. Uh, laureates for literature and then he commissioned a joint report uh, with uh, Desmond uh, Tutu about the situation in Burma etc etc he, he I mean he remained involved ever since 1990s uh, until the end of his presidency 2003 but even beyond uh, until his death actually in 2011 he remained uh, deeply interested in, in all things Burma and and uh, and uh, the the uh, because most of the time uh, Aung San Suu Kyi was actually uh, uh, either in prison or under house arrest. Uh, personal meeting was not possible, but he would uh, uh, as a gesture invite her uh, to an annual event uh, he was organizing in the Czech Republic, which was the Forum 2000 uh, conference, where he, so he would every year invite her as a speaker there of course it wasn't possible for her to come but it was like a, a, a gesture and uh, they managed somehow to exchange some letters and uh, there was uh, actually one phone call uh, between them so they never met but they exchanged letters and they managed to one just one single time to talk on phone
Mm, right. And there's also this beautiful story about the rose, <clears throat> which I read that the, the, the role that this rose has between the relationship. I wonder if you can tell that story. Oh, oh yeah. This was like uh, um, uh, one Z uh, saw a, a picture with Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, with this uh, signature flower uh, in her hair. Uh, he thought it was a rose, but who knows what it was? Yeah, <laughs> in the what, what kind of flower it was, but but uh, somehow thought it was a rose. So he once wrote an article. I think it was for the Washington Post uh, that uh, once he would like to hand over uh, uh, to her uh, rose when she is uh, free and he can finally uh, meet her. But as I mentioned, it wasn't actually possible uh, because. Um, uh, uh, the meeting didn't happen only on the phone conversation, exchange of letters. Uh, but uh, when we traveled with uh, with uh, uh, Minister Karol Schwarzenberg at the time, Foreign Minister of the Czech Republic, when we traveled to uh, Burma, uh, when when uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, the Aung San Suu Kyi was a state councilor at the time, uh, we decided somehow that we have to fulfill what Savavel's wish. So we actually were saved the uh, flowers that uh, were like put to Václav Havel's uh, coffin when he died by citizens, by the people. Uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, a Czech artist uh, somehow uh, uh, was a very famous artist, uh, Bořek Šípek. He kind of uh, from this flower and uh, his uh, created kind of glass object in which this this uh, flower was embedded so it could like uh, survive for years and months uh, months and years like that so we actually gave this uh, object with that uh, flower to Aung San Suu Kyi during during our visit to uh, to uh, Nepido uh, and I can't remember when it was I think 2013 if I remember correctly yeah I think that 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 was the year Mm, yeah, that's quite a story. So the the deathbed <clears throat> flowers that are given to Havel on his uh, two thousand sorry two thousand twelve July two thousand twelve. I see, I see, right, right. So that's quite a story. These are the deathbed flowers that are given to Havel and his coffin, and one of them is then encased and presented in person to Aung San Suu Kyi to fulfill a. Uh, beyond the uh, gift that's beyond the grave, in in your own words, in the uh, article. At, at this moment, I would uh, make a modest remark that it was my idea. Okay, right, <laughs> right. And so this this was able to this this long held aspiration of Havel to mm -hmm. deliver a rose to Aung San Suu Kyi was fulfilled in person after his death. That's quite a remarkable and dramatic story, and it also leads to wondering about Aung San Suu Kyi's trajectory. And I think you're a great person to ask about this because you were you came of age during the Velvet Revolution at the same time as the 88 Revolution in Burma, same year really. And 
uh, and you were very close to both of these leading democratic figures, Aung San Suu Kyi, as well as Havel, and involved in all kinds of uh, other activities pertaining to democracies and overcoming tyranny. And of course, when Havel died in 2010, this was before Aung San Suu Kyi had taken any power. And very famously, we don't need to go too much into rehashing history. Most of our listeners know this. When Aung San Suu Kyi actually took power in 2015 with the NLD, her actions and her words were underwhelming for many that had had higher hopes for her and wished her to be a, a, an inclusive and democratic icon. Uh, the reasons why she might not have lived up to that. There are many different interpretations for that. But I wonder, I would like to hear yours. And I'd also, not just yours, but I, someone who is so close to Havel and who Havel did not see her trajectory beyond 2010. And so this kind of pristine Nobel Prize winning democracy icon, this was the image that he still have of her. And so I wonder your thoughts as well, if Havel was to see what would happen in the ensuing 10 years, what, how that might shift his thoughts or his actions or, or engagement, as well as your thoughts with, with what became of her and her decisions as she became a leader. Uh, I, I, I don't dare to like uh, kind of speculate uh, what Václav Havel uh, would have would have uh, thought, but it is true that uh, until uh, his death in 2011, uh, he he uh, kind of uh, didn't have a reason uh, to change uh, his uh, image, and. Uh, uh, I would dare to speculate that um, in like many topics uh, or many uh, criticism uh, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi was exposed to that he would have maybe understood her he himself uh, uh, since 1990 until uh, 2003 so for 13 years he was a uh, practicing politician so he knew that you have to make um, compromises and you have somehow to navigate the political uh, landscape and uh, respect uh, political uh, realities and i think the uh, former czech dissidents uh, collaborators of Václav Havel uh, at uh, understanding uh, for this there was, of course, uh, a big debate uh, around the uh, Rohingya issue. That was, I think, the and about her relationship to uh, ethnic uh, minorities uh, in general. Um, so, uh, regard specifically regarding uh, Rohingya, there was uh, quite a criticism. Uh, uh, by the Czech press or in the Czech Republic, also by some former uh, dissident, uh, but uh, uh, it was also uh, done with a certain understanding for her situation that although uh, she was criticized for not uh, have spoken out, you know, uh, uh, against the persecution of Rohingya at the same time, uh, I, I think that uh, that uh, her Czech critics uh, knew that it's uh, mainly the military who has to be uh, blamed for the uh, for the situation 
uh, in the uh, Rakhine state. So uh, I, I think in some media, I spent some time in Sweden as ambassador uh, for uh, four years. So I don't think that, uh, that for instance, Swedish uh, press and Swedish critics uh, didn't uh, differentiate uh, uh, that uh, clearly. So there was like, um, uh, they, they uh, I, I mean, the criticism there was like, the, they, they thought she somehow was the instigator maybe of the situation. While, while uh, we know that that uh, situation Myanmar with the division of power between military and NLD was uh, very complex. Right, I think, and I think that it's certainly true. Uh, looking at um, whenever Myanmar is analyzed in the outside world, the the first victim is always lack of nuance. There's always these broad brushstrokes of trying to understand the country and the people and the nuance and the detailed understanding, the context are often the first things that are lost. Um, sticking on that priority of of, um, of nuance and of understanding things in more detail. I want to return to these two democratic revolutions happening at the same time in 1988, the Velvet Revolution in Czech, which was successful, and the 88 revolution in Burma, which I would say was not yet successful. I, many people I've spoken mm-hmm. to are, are careful not to call it a failure, that it was an important building block for where we are now, but it certainly was not successful at that time. Time. Um, I was really struck by reading Mathita's book. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, with Mathita, Prisoner of Conscience, uh, the, the the book book's title, and she was also a guest on this podcast. And she, as she's writing her experiences from 1988 on to like the mid 90s or so, is when it leaves off. Mm-hmm. She's referencing not just what's happening in Burma, but what's happening around the world with especially the the Soviet Union and the fall of communism and Czech Republic is referenced. And it was very interesting to read that and get this feeling that as, as they're seeking their own democratic aspirations in Myanmar, they are aware and excited about these developments around the world. There seems to be this surge of momentum happening and, and freedom starting to open up and the sense of why not here. Uh, of course, that was not yet successful. And so as someone who, as mentioned before, as, as we just referenced, someone as yourself who arose from the Velvet Revolution and benefited from that happening to your society and then later became very involved, intrinsically involved in Myanmar and developing a, a very detailed understanding of the 88 revolution, working with many of the activists from there. How would you compare and contrast these two revolutions that happened at the same time in very different places? Um, I think that Czechs uh, were, in a way, lucky because the like international environment was uh, 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 kind of uh, more friendly to them at that time because the regime in what was then Czechoslovakia uh, it was uh, a regime installed by the uh, Soviet invasion in 1968. And with the uh, Soviet Union at that time reforming itself with Gorbachev and ultimately also uh, uh, kind of a, uh, losing its grip on, on, on like the former satellites in Central and Eastern uh, Europe, uh, it was actually not that difficult to 
get rid of the communist regime because it was really just the extended hand uh, of, of the Soviet Union in, in, a, in our country. So with the changes in the Soviet Union, we could do that. It was a little bit different in, in Burma, in Myanmar. The, uh, of course, the uh, uh, military regime was kind of homegrown, so uh, it was uh, much more difficult to uh, get uh, rid of it. So uh, in, in that sense, I don't think that uh, Czechs were somehow... Uh, Czechs, didn't, Czechs didn't succeed because they were better. They were just more lucky. Yeah, and uh, uh, but uh, there was always like uh, uh, from from the part of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, for instance. I remember she in one of her essays she wrote that uh, uh, she felt a particular affinity for the writings of uh, Czech uh, uh, dissidents. She wrote an uh, essay. Czechs and us, where she actually compared uh, the movements in, in both countries, and uh, she definitely uh, followed the situation uh, in the in Czechoslovakia and the the victory of the civic forum led by uh, Václav Havel. Yeah, um, uh, me. You know, when I was uh, uh, ambassador, accredited also to to Myanmar. Uh, I uh, presented my credentials at the time to the uh, uh, leader of the junta, uh, Tan Shui, and uh, I kind of a because also at the, in his time the military they were they were always talking about like that they are, they were planning elections and reforms they never happened actually at that time, but they were still talking about it. So I was, during the meeting, I kind of uh, offered our experience from the transformation from uh, the totalitarian regime to uh, uh, democracy, and uh, if, if they are interested, you know, in kind of uh, uh, ask if they were interested in our uh, experience, but I never got uh, any answer uh, to that they they just i mean the offer and whatever i said about the need to respect human rights and about uh, transformation of the society towards democracy they just kind of ignored and they changed the topic so right. uh, the, the, uh, so this part of the burmese society was not interested in our experience as opposed to the nld right Right. So as ambassador to Myanmar during that period in the early 2000s, you came in contact with many members of the ruling regime, including, as you referenced, Than Shui, who was the... Uh, Than Shui was just the one meeting because he didn't meet foreign dignitaries very often. It was just the one occasion when I presented my uh, credentials. Right. Yeah. Is there anything that stands out about him personally? I'm just wondering if you, just from a, a human sense of sharing a room with him, if there's something that you recall or remember from that interaction. I only remember that at that time, you know, like everybody was speculating, uh, maybe he's like already sick and maybe he's not like, uh, there were like hopes that uh, he might not be up to his task so but he was quite 
lively and very healthy. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that was like, uh, I thought, okay, it's not like uh, uh, there's no, no solution in the sense that it would be some natural, let's say, uh, physical exchange of the leadership in a, in a natural way. And his kind of disinterest in actually discussing really political uh, issues. The, the, uh, uh, I mean, the line um, he had was like, uh, he was talking about how, how Bangkok or Singapore are fantastic cities with uh, these skyscrapers and they would like to have something like that in uh, Burma uh, too. And uh, the, I remember that the foreign minister, not 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 Tan Shui, he, he said something along the lines that uh, in 1968, the uh, uh, at that time the uh, Burmese regime condemned the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, so uh, they are confident that uh, Czechs would now uh, condemn any. Uh, like uh, attempts of uh, foreign interference in mm. uh, Burma. So uh, that mm. was like the, the line they were like, I mean, what, whatever I said, this was their mm. line. And uh, there was uh, actually not much interest in, 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 um, uh, in, in our experience from transition to democracy. Mm, you've you've been a diplomat in half a dozen different countries. How is your experience as a diplomat in Myanmar different from being an ambassador in the other countries you were in? And if I talk about, uh, let's say, Asian countries, because from Bangkok I was accredited to Burma, but also to Cambodia and uh, uh, Laos. So uh, in in uh, Burma. Uh, it was really we we, we supported uh, the democratic uh, opposition. Uh, we uh, helped to the families of political prisoners. We supported also the ethnic groups uh, in the uh, border regions, and it made us, of course, not very popular in the eyes of the uh, of the uh, regime. And there were even mm -hmm. occasionally. Uh, in the uh, Burmese press, like uh, campaigns, you know, against the uh, Czech Republic or what they what they uh, uh, presented as uh, us interfering into their uh, internal uh, affairs. Uh, at the same time, there were some kind of activities they allowed, you know, like uh, I don't know, we, we provided some training to Burmese uh, uh, filmmakers and we and it was somehow uh, permitted we were allowed to uh, do that there were some activities that were allowed uh, uh, compared to that for instance in in, in uh, Laos uh, uh, each and every activity of the embassy uh, required uh, official permission, even a simple, I don't know, like uh, viewing of some old film or whatever, everything uh, required permission. And there was actually no uh, democratic opposition to speak of. They were all in exile. So our activities in Laos were very much uh, uh, limited. And in, in Cambodia, the focus was on cultural exchange because we didn't have big economic interest there, but there was like always uh, 
uh, hundreds and thousands of Cambodians who studied in the Czech Republic. We were we used to be in the past, not anymore, but the second biggest uh, donor or provider of uh, uh, the development uh, assistance to Cambodia after France. So there was really big numbers of, of Cambodians who studied uh, in, in the Czech Republic, including the king. So uh, we focused on like uh, developing contacts with them, organizing cultural events, etc., etc. So, mm -hmm. And with Thailand, it was very much uh, about uh, our economic uh, uh, relations. So it was like different focus in uh, different um, uh, countries. But uh, uh, in, in, in Burma, I would say there was occasionally even like a direct conflict with the with the authorities oh. there. How so? Wasn't the case elsewhere. How did that direct conflict play out? Oh, mainly it was like mainly in kind of uh, these uh, um, steering the official press in. Burma, for instance, there was even a, once a campaign against Václav Havel and uh, uh, Desmond Tutu. When I, I mentioned the report, they uh, commissioned, and they uh, the result was that uh, they suggested that the Security Council of the United Nations deals with the Burma issue, which actually happened uh, later. So they they. Um, really disliked this uh, initiative. They started a campaign against Václav Havel and uh, uh, the Czech Republic in, in the uh, Burmese press. And quite interestingly, uh, oh, and they also initiated like a letter campaign to our embassy in, in, in Bangkok, where mm. um, like Burmese students allegedly uh, uh, wrote us uh, letters where they criticized the Czech attitude. Only all the letters from all around the country were exactly the same. So oh. it was obviously like steered. But then we received a couple of... Uh, letters, uh, like authentic letters by Burmese students, where they wrote, please uh, ignore this campaign. They are, we have to do it. They are like telling us uh, to do that, you know, at the, at the universities. Um, and uh, so I, I know that you receive these letters these days, but uh, we are actually uh, happy uh, about this report. Please uh, continue uh, your work and we are grateful for your uh, support. So this was like authentic authentic mm. uh, as uh, we received this was very uh, very encouraging and i hope nobody else uh, wrote uh, read those letters to us because of course their authors uh, would uh, end up with uh, i don't know if in prison but definitely they would have mm. had, had a trouble if, if somebody knew what they were writing to us so given that the Czech mission was basically facing what you describe as open hostility and conflict, how were you able to operate in Burma in such a way where you were still able to associate and even support not only the democratic actors and the dissidents and the political prisoners, but also the ethnic minorities who were pushing for human rights in their territories? How were you able to operate in such a way that supported their democratic movement and human rights when you were facing such open forms of diplomatic hostility? Oh, um, as I mentioned, despite of that, some of our activities, which were not 
explicitly political are still uh, permitted. Uh, also, in, we worked also in partnership with uh, uh, missions at that time who actually resided in Yangon. I don't know with the French uh, Institute or with uh, with the Brits, with the with the Americans, with uh, uh, other uh, missions um, uh, in, in 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 Yangon, uh, and uh, regarding. Uh, the assistance to uh, political prisoners or rather their families. We just worked with existing uh, networks like the uh, association to assist political prisoners, I mean, uh, within the uh, country and uh, uh, with uh, ethnic groups. We work directly with the ethnic groups in the uh, border uh, regions. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean there were, there was a lot of channels or through the NLD, uh, which somehow was able uh, in a limited way to operate uh, under uh, Tanshwe. So we, we we had a, a lot of uh, let's say unofficial partners. Mm. Right, and what stands out in all in these many multifaceted interactions you had with with democratic activists and ethnic minorities what what stands out in your interactions with members of that community and how they were pursuing these goals the risks they were taken it was incredible you know like they were like risking their lives uh, decades in prison but they still were willing to uh, do it it was it was really uh, admirable yeah uh, i mean the 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 courage and the perseverance that 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 definitely impressed me a lot mm, right and so going through the trajectory of myanmar history even after you left as ambassador of course we know about saffron revolution the cyclone nargis and then the democratic mm-hmm. transition period i wondered to what as, as you had left in your capacity as ambassador but your your as i understand your heart never really left their cause and always stayed in touch to this day with the various people and contacts you made what can how can you take us through that period and what <clears throat> what you were thinking how the czech republic was involved as it progressed through to the democratic transition prior to the coup uh, by the way uh, 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 although i uh, left uh, the region in 2006 i was still for a few years afterwards as a director for uh, uh, for Asia and Pacific in our ministry, and also after Nargis, uh, I traveled to Burma to attend this big international donor conference. Uh, I was appointed for that occasion, like a special envoy for uh, for Burma. And uh, I think the behavior of the junta after after the cyclone was like eye opening for the international community. Also, those who were maybe not that much interested in Burma before, they were shocked how. How the when they saw how the uh, junta uh, reacted, I mean, heartlessly against their own people uh, after the cyclone uh, uh, Nargis. How it was, yeah. Um, no, I uh, remained involved also uh, privately, and uh, I kind of traveled to the ethnic regions, uh, ethnic regions, very often. For instance, with uh, you might know uh, Free Burma Rangers, the organization. Sure, and yeah. I 
was also trying to organize um, assistance, you know, in the current state and in the Shan states, other regions through uh, various uh, Czech NGOs. So uh, there are many Czech NGOs. Uh, so there was a governmental help, but there was also several Czech NGOs who were like uh, assisting uh, significantly both in the uh, central regions, but also in the uh, ethnic regions like people in need or uh, Adra, uh, the, the uh, Czech uh, uh, Adra, uh, which is an like uh, Christian organization, or uh, many, many, many other uh, organizations were involved in I don't know uh, providing uh, uh, medical equipment. Uh, 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 renovating villages uh, like burned by the uh, TAT model, uh, uh, providing, uh, I don't know, uh, textbooks or solar uh, panels or internet access or, or yeah, many kinds of uh, assistance, especially in the ethnic areas that were like uh, accessible. Uh, uh, through uh, from the Thai border, so you don't have to go uh, through uh, through the official channels there. So there was a, uh, I think, quite a significant uh, assistance uh, uh, there from the Czech NGOs. Mm, right, and then as the transition period plays out, the two thousand, basically two thousand ten to two thousand twenty, until the coup with various. Uh, markers happening during that time to further push the country and the society into more openness. There's been a lot of discussion about what this period was. Was it a genuine opening in some regard, or was it was it a quasi-democracy or something that was just more the facade? What, as someone who's been so involved in Burma for so many years and following democracy movements in your own country and other countries around the world, you certainly have a background for being able to critically examine this. So what was your analysis as this decade took off? Oh, it was a very, I would, I would, it was a very promising period, you know, and uh, uh, we had hopes that, uh, I, I mean, it was very clear to us from the beginning that uh, there are limitations uh, uh, given by the fact that the constitution was what it was and that it gave uh, a lot of power to unelected uh, military uh, leaders but at the same time uh, there was a lot of uh, space uh, at, at the time which didn't exist before also for international cooperation for economic uh, development there was a, a freedom of uh, press to a, a large uh, degree so we had big hopes we opened at that time as the czech republic our embassy in uh, Yangon uh, bef before that uh, as I, as I uh, mentioned we covered uh, Burma from uh, Bangkok but at that time we opened the embassy there. Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi visited uh, Prague uh, actually and met uh, former collaborators of uh, Václav Havel. She actually attended the Forum 2000 conference to which Havel was inviting her like every year before when she was under house arrest so Again, mm -hmm. it was like a symbolic gesture for her to uh, actually attend the conference of the Vassar sure. Havel 
uh, was uh, dead uh, already, but she met uh, former uh, Havel's collaborators. We had a very good uh, discussion. And uh, uh, our Minister of Foreign Affairs and uh, other ministers uh, traveled to Burma frequently at that time. We made Burma and the situation in Burma even before that, uh, I mean, before the this opening during our uh, EU presidency in 2009, we made it one of our uh, priorities, you know, like the democratic change in uh, uh, Burma. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so I can't say that the coup was like totally uh, unexpected. Uh, it was like uh, we were never naive in the sense that we, that we we always kind of thought something like that might happen, but we hoped it wouldn't. I, yeah, I would put it that way. <laughs> Mm, and of course, something did happen with the coup a year and a half ago that was launched. Did that take you by surprise? Did you see it coming? What were your thoughts when you heard that news? Uh, well, not we didn't see it coming in the sense that 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 uh, we, we we would kind of uh, know something more than others did, you know. But there was a certain build-up, right? After the, after they uh, didn't uh, want to accept the result of the election, so there was a kind of a certain tension, and there was like a certain build-up, and, and and there was something in the uh, air. So we, we 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 hoped it wouldn't happen. It 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 uh, uh, did, and it's of course uh, uh, sad. And what's what's also sad that the uh, international uh, reaction was not maybe as forceful as it could have been yeah uh, the there is a uh, uh, like the the civil society in burma is a uh, very strong it is resisting the ethnic groups are resisting but they don't get much uh, outside help mm. Right, yeah, that's certainly been the case since the the, the coup was launched. Um, what has uh, regarding the international community, we we see a, a lack of action. What can you say about Czech Republic specifically? Who's been a longtime friend of Burma? What has the Czech Republic been able to do since the coup was launched to show support and solidarity? They were like, uh, I mean, we continue, of course, to support Burma. They were like. Uh, there were like uh, several developments which made it uh, uh, more complicated. Of course, the pandemic, where before that we were like uh, providing uh, check travel documents to uh, many, uh, not only Burmese exiles, but even uh, some, uh, let's say, members of the uh, of the, uh, the Burmese government and currently also some members of the uh, uh, government of the national unity in Burma, they're actually holders of Czech travel uh, documents. But during the pandemic, uh, it was not uh, technically uh, possible to continue uh, with this. They were not able actually to uh, travel to the Czech Republic. And now 
uh, admittedly, although we, we uh, still continue with that support, now uh, the main attention is on the war, uh, over the Russia's war against uh, Ukraine, which kind of makes sense. Of course, it's uh, uh, closer, it's a direct uh, threat uh, for us because Putin declared war uh, not only uh, to Ukraine, but uh, as he put it, to the entire West and uh, uh, they caused, uh, I mean, Russian secret services uh, caused an explosion uh, on our ter- uh, territory of an ammunition depot some years ago. And uh, so it was a direct enemy act. And uh, of course, in that context, it's understandable that the, that the main focus of the uh, uh, let's say Czech political scene is on the uh, on on the situation in uh, Ukraine, uh, but at the same time, the uh, uh, Burmese uh, representative uh, for uh, Europe or accredited to most European countries, and I mean now the. Uh, the, uh, of course, uh, uh, government of national uh, unity, I don't mean the uh, junta, but the representative seats in Prague. So that's also, in a way, uh, symbolic. And he's also a holder of a Czech travel (laughs) uh, document. Uh, So uh, we continue with the support, but uh, 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 the problem is that nobody knows exactly what to do from the Czech Republic now, except for, mm-hmm. let's say, some humanitarian help, some providing of the travel documents. Uh, uh, there's always some uh, like uh, discussion about uh, 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 like providing weapons also, like it's done in Ukraine, but uh, besides of uh, kind of... Uh, theoretical debate about it is uh, of course how, how how could it be done technically you know this is uh, not a neighboring country you know so right. even if if, if uh, the debate would lead to a, a conclusion that uh, something like that uh, would make sense uh, how 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 could we do that you know so uh, i i think there is a, a little bit like uh, Kind of certain level of helplessness there's there because we, we 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 simply don't know what to do. Right. Well, away from the question of logistics, just looking at the the ethical possibility of uh, providing weapons. Where where do you stand on that? Just removing the logistical challenge of getting them there. Do you think that this is something that Western governments and organizations should consider beyond humanitarian need is actually finding a way to get armaments and weaponry into the resistance fighters? Uh, now, I would express only my private opinion. Yeah, I'm a government official sure. and I'm not uh, directly dealing with this issue at all. I'm, I'm ambassador to Austria and I'm not in charge of, of, of this issue anymore. Uh, but in my opinion, it should be considered, yes. Mm. Right. And for what, this is a very controversial topic, whether or not to provide arms and something as controversial as it is, it's actually, as far as I see, it's not 
being discussed or weighed even all that much. So to give some background to your, as you say, your private, not your governmental opinion, what what's your reasoning for why you believe that the West should seriously consider providing arms and weaponry to the resistance now? We, we, we see that uh, kind of people need it there, like for their self-defense, right? The, the uh, uh, military, the top model is uh, attacking uh, civilians, uh, uh, both uh, in the cities, but also uh, ethnic uh, uh, villagers, and uh, they have access to uh, foreign weapons. Right? They use I don't know Russian helicopters, and and they they use uh, uh, other uh, Russian or Chinese uh, or whatever uh, equipment so uh, that would in a way balance the situation and give uh, to the people a way how to defend themselves but i'm here really like speculating because uh, it's it's uh, of course a very sensitive issue and i'm expressing my purely private opinion Sure. Do you, do you believe there could be a, a precedent for providing the weapons or just a historical justification that would, uh, that would show that this is something that is reasonable and needed at this time? Uh, well, yeah, we have uh, one example now. It is uh, Ukraine, of course. Sure, sure. Yeah, so, and it uh, makes a lot of sense there. Uh, but, yeah. It's true that it is something that that uh, the situation in Ukraine is uh, a direct threat to the mm. stability of uh, Europe as such. So it is a uh, kind of a. Uh, uh, I mean, there is no other way. You know, the 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 it's an uh, act of defense here. So mm. while maybe some other part of the world it could be perceived as a. Uh, kind of act of war, you know, like <laughs> against uh, against uh, uh, foreign uh, country. But yeah, it's I mean it's a complicated issue. But uh, I think that it could be considered also as legitimate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Looking at this resistance movement that's developed, and I don't just mean the PDFs and the arm resistance, I mean the whole thing, the the um, the NUG, the CDM movement, uh, all, all the different components of how people everywhere are trying to resist military rule at this time. Being someone such as yourself, who's not only a student of history and understanding of Myanmar's recent as well as longer history, who lived through uh, as, a, as a diplomat, as an ambassador, several years of where this was playing out in real time in front of you. Uh, I'm really curious to hear your opinion of what you think of this current democratic movement, this current resistance movement. You've seen these forces at play under the surface, sometimes above the surface for decades before this. You probably know all the main actors and have worked with them and supported them in various ways. You've seen attempts of these uh, these potentialities come up from time to time and not succeed in those times. And we're now witnessing something that many are saying is significantly different and unique from what has come before. So as someone who has lived through, engaged with, and studied this recent history 
of the democratic movement in Myanmar. What are you, what stands out to you today? What are you seeing? What's your analysis of this current resistance and movement? Yeah, it's true that in the last years, as I mentioned, I didn't have the possibility to travel to the region. So I don't feel uh, as much uh, competent as I might have felt a few years ago. But what, what stands out for me is really this, uh, that this this is really a national movement uh, today. What uh, in the past might have been like uh, some isolated groups of dissidents, you know, of course, uh, dissidents that that uh, or um, activists who had electoral success when it came to elections, but uh, nevertheless, it was like the uh, the. Um, isolated uh, groups of people. It seems to be a quite a widespread national movement uh, now. So I would say that's that's quite different. Mm-hmm. And as you watch this play out, and you're in touch with the people from before, I assume, what what are you watching for? What do you what trends are you seeing that are happening? It's been almost two years this has played out. So what what stands out from what's taking place and what hopes do you have of where it might lead to? Um, I, I mean, what, what, um, I, I don't want to make some like, um, uh, general assessments. Uh, uh what, what, uh, I see it's, uh, uh, different from the past to mention one negative thing is the, uh, even increased brutality of the uh, of the army, uh, which uh, uses uh, kind of equipment they didn't use before, also like in the ethnic areas, also uh, attacks by uh, helicopters and airplanes, etc., etc., and the increased brutality uh, in uh, condemning uh, condemning. Uh, the uh, activists who uh, are against the regime uh, and uh, executing actually them, you know, uh, that's uh, also this brutality of the regime. That's that's uh, I didn't imagine it could be even more brutal than it used to be, but it, it obviously is. But it also uh, expresses maybe the level of desperation they are in. I mean, they they. Uh, maybe feel they are losing the grip, they are losing uh, control. So there is a certain hope in that. Mm, yeah, yeah, of course. And I think some people are already looking towards what would a post Tamada Myanmar look like and how would it move on beyond this and looking at what happened and didn't happen in the transition period as a blueprint for how to do better and try to build a more equitable society going forward, looking at models such as truth and reconciliation as in South Africa. You actually, in your diplomatic post before, you were involved with Czech-German reconciliation following Mm. the Nazi regime in World War II. And so I wonder if you see any parallels or lessons learned from your extensive involvement in repairing in the reconciliation of Czech-German relations to, and I understand these are two different countries, even though one occupied the other, Mm -hmm. but if you see any similarities or or lessons learned that could be applied in a potential post-Tamada world where 
there in building a more just and equitable society, there can also be some kind of understanding or reconciling without giving giving back power or privilege to those who've committed these atrocities and shaping a way forward. Um, I, I don't know, of course, if these uh, experiences are fully, uh, let's say, transferable or applicable, but uh, there was uh, a need not, not only uh, to reconcile with our neighbors like Germans and uh, Austrians, etc., but there was a need for reconciliation also within uh, our society. And sure. uh, so, uh, uh, so we adapted also a series of uh, laws and measures uh, dealing with this. And one of them is a, a certain like a measure of justice for the victims. Uh, so there was a series of, uh, let's say, uh, laws which aimed to uh, assist those who were somehow prosecuted by the former regime, also financially. So there was some uh, kind of compensations, so which, which uh, I think was uh, extremely uh, important. Uh, uh, restitution, for instance, of like confiscated uh, property, or if somebody couldn't uh, study for political reasons, you know, to give him the opportunity and support him, etc., etc. I think it was extremely important. On the other side, to deal with the uh, perpetrators, where uh, we had a special law, it was called uh, lustration law or screening uh, law where some uh, collaborators of the of the former secret uh, police and some high ranking officials of the communist party were not allowed to uh, uh, be employed by the uh, uh, government you know like uh, to work in the ministries etc uh, but they could be elected uh, in in elected positions uh, that that, that was like possibly because it's up to the people if they want to elect such people it was up to them but they couldn't uh, get a position in the in the uh, ministries on the like public servant uh, level so that was like uh, really important some people thought it was not enough you know there was not like uh, uh, the the crimes of the previous regime were not uh, punished uh, enough but at least uh, you have to attempt uh, to do that like symbolically you know some of the some of the uh, let's say like the harshest uh, crimes uh, committed uh, they should be somehow exposed i don't know in in the burmese case some military commanders who massacre civilian population you know they shouldn't be pardoned you know there should be at least some some measure of uh, justice uh, there uh, but at the same time at the same time you need to move uh, forward somehow so it's all, always a question of uh, of uh, measure right how 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 far you can go in uh, in all these um, like pursuing uh, justice and keep the society together at the same uh, at, at the same time so and uh, regarding uh, Czech German uh, reconciliation uh, it was uh, uh, like uh, one of the biggest uh, tasks uh, of the era after 1989 because uh, 
Uh, it was connected with the German occupation of Czech lands in the Second World War, where uh, uh, many people were killed, many people were prosecuted or sent to uh, concentration camps, and uh, somehow they expected some level of uh, acknowledgement or compensation from Germany. Uh, on the other side, there was a lot of acts of retaliation after the war against Germans who were ethnic Germans were expelled from the Czech lands and, and of course there were some also crimes uh, committed against them in that period so there was like a, uh, it took us actually uh, first we established a committee of historians uh, who, which dealt with this issue for several years without too much political interference and then the next step was the that the political uh, representations uh, decided to conclude the issue by negotiating like a joint uh, declaration on um, uh, Czech-German relations and future development where both sides, the German side acknowledged uh, its uh, its uh, responsibility for uh, starting the Second World War, for the crimes of the occupation, the Czech side uh, acknowledged their responsibility for uh, going too far sometimes in the retaliation uh, after the war. The joint fund was uh, created which compensated some of the uh, Nazi victims and then and, and it was used for projects of uh, uh, joint interest like uh, youth exchanges or uh, renovating of some monuments in the uh, border regions or uh, things like that. So, and I, I can say that now, uh, nowadays, uh, today, uh, the questions from the past don't play any role whatsoever in German relations. So in, in that sense, uh, it was a successful mm. endeavor, but it took us after 1989, uh, actually, 20 years to, right. to uh, come to the stage. So it, it's a long process. Yeah. It's, it's not easy. <clears throat> yeah, and I think that's something very important to keep in mind in Myanmar is that even if the democratic movement were to win today in the top and I would be defeated, the mountain of work that's needed on, on all fronts from education to healthcare to governance to the electrical grid, uh, the economy, uh, and then reconciliation, these things <clears throat> are are going to take so long to try to fix and fix right. And there's no guarantee that... The relationship to ethnic nationalities, that's very important also to, to address that. And this is one of the things maybe that uh, didn't go far enough in, in, in the time when it was uh, halfway possible, you know, in the time of the NLD uh, uh, rule. But yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to come back to what you were talking about, the the World War II, the German occupation, of course, the Holocaust. And this brings up a topic which intersected with my time in Myanmar when I was with the American embassy. And I this was 2010 when this incident happened, so I believe you were out of the country. But I wonder if you um, were aware of these dynamics taking place in the history, given your background and your time in Myanmar. 
when I was at the embassy, my, my understanding was, and I wasn't on the inside of these discussions, so I don't know how they were, per, what was actually happening in detail, but the way it was explained to me was that the American, the Israeli, and the German embassies had been trying for many years to lobby what was then the military regime to be able to bring a program of, during Holocaust uh, Remembrance Week, which is an international uh, week where where themes in history of the Holocaust are are brought out to remind and educate people on what happened, and that they had been trying to do this in Yangon, and the military regime had consistently refused. And somehow, I believe it was two thousand nine or ten. I don't remember, but the the military regime accepted and allowed them to do. And so I was part of a series of presentations and exhibitions through these three embassies of educating Burmese about, in a, in a series of movies, documentaries, panels, discussions, etc., what the Holocaust was. And it was a, an astounding experience because this was before the age of internet. Of course, education is not, um, well, I should say there's, of course, internet exists in the world, but in Myanmar, it's very limited at that time. And the access to books and proper education and such, there, there, there's just not, a, from for a, a genocide and atrocity that happened half a century or more ago, half a world away, there, there were many who had never heard of it. And I've never had an experience like this in my life where I'm in these rooms where these mature, educated, adult Burmese are hearing and trying to conceptualize and understand what the Holocaust was for the first time in their mm -hmm. lives. And I've never in my life seen someone at that age and education maturity level hearing about the Holocaust for the very first time and just trying to map out like the the vague contours the general shape of whoa, whoa what just happened like what is this and i i remember i still remember some of the questions you know i remember and i remember these participants had had tears in their eyes you know as they're hearing about what happened they, they don't even really know what a jew is or they they don't really understand this and i remember once someone raising their hand and just saying like well, why why did the Germans hate them so much? Like what, what, like what drove them to want to exterminate this people? And it, it was such a kind of innocent and naive question, but also very understandable because if you're hearing about this for the first time, of course, this is one of, and you don't really understand, well, what's a German and what's a Jew and what's their history there and what's the history of anti-Semitism? This is also foreign to you. It would be similar to going to Germany and talking to uh, an audience about the the, the long term tensions of Rohingya and and Bamar or, or or ethnic minorities in Bamar. There's just such a context to teach. It's hard to wrap your head around it. The, the difference, of course, is that the Holocaust was a uh, a, an unprecedented um, orchestrated act of of uh, systematized state genocide that um, and and just the cruelty of those state mechanisms truly stand out. Um, but it was really it was really something else that I'll never forget in my life of seeing what it was like to tell an audience about the Holocaust who had never heard of it before ever and to see their reaction and how it landed. And, you know, and then also to try it very carefully because at that time this was, of course, the military regime was in full power, try to 
use those lessons to talk about some of the ethnic hatreds. This was, of course, the uh, this was years um, before the the real Rohingya campaigns would begin, which have been recently termed a genocide. So there's there's obviously parallels in terms of one group's hatred and and mistrust of others. Um, but I'm I'm wondering your comments on that because you're you're some and I'm also wondering if my recollection of this is is correct with the Holocaust Memorial Week. But as someone who has this as yourself who has this history of of looking at anti-Semitism, at German-Czech relations, at being an ambassador in Myanmar when all these ethnic tensions are happening, what your thoughts are on this coming together of, uh, of learning about uh, uh, anti, anti-Semitic Holocaust history in a place like Myanmar? I think it would be uh, definitely very uh, useful. Uh, in my time, we were not involved in this particular topics uh, uh, like trying to teach about holocaust we did some events like this in cambodia you know in the because in the connection of uh, like uh, khmer rouge you know and and, and in in, uh, in the um, yeah, we, we did some exhibition about holocaust in the on the sites of the uh, khmer rouge uh, uh, genocide, but we didn't do that in in in, in Burma. That's true. Um, in Burma, we focused with uh, on on uh, like um, transmitting our experiences from our own uh, transition to democracy. But uh, when I v- visited uh, Burma once, I was director for Asia uh, at the time, also I was not uh, ambassador anymore. And uh, but after. Um, uh, I, I think it would have been maybe 2008, 2009, I don't remember the year exactly, but uh, we traveled to Nepido. It was for the first time for me to be in uh, Nepido. I, uh, I never visited it uh, before. We traveled there by car and we were searching for the foreign ministry and kind of all the buildings look the same. So on a crossroad, we saw a group of young Burmese on motorbikes and we approach them and ask uh, like ask them for directions and to my surprise then uh, I saw that they had these uh, uh, all of them these Nazi style German Second World War military helmets hmm. with uh, uh, Nazi symbols on them hmm. you know, like uh, SS and the the uh, these uh, Eagle and Hakenkreuz uh, and, and the swastika, and uh, it kind of uh, totally surprised me, shocked me. And but they were like, uh, it, it was obvious they had absolutely no idea what it was. I I don't know where did they get it from. They were not. I asked them, but they didn't give us an answer. They just kind of a. Uh, uh, purchased these helmets somewhere, somebody gave them to them, but they were like, uh, it was like a bizarre situation when Mm. uh, we were like uh, approaching the uh, Burmese foreign ministry in Nepido and we were accompanied because they were showing us the way, which we couldn't find by ourselves. We were accompanied by a group of young Burmese on the motorbike with helmets with Nazi symbols. So I, I... took some photos back then, but I understood that there was absolutely zero awareness about about, yeah. about this uh, era, you know. So that that was my encounter with uh, 
with this issue, but we, we uh, as a Czech embassy, we, we didn't uh, actually organize uh, any events uh, like that, and maybe we could have. Now, when you are saying that, it's, it seems like a good idea, actually. Mm, and I think that anecdote just speaks to the power of this the symbology that uh, that Hitler came up with that he's able that they they talk about just the resonance of the swastika and the black and the red and what it was able to do subliminally and psychologically in people's minds and I think this is just a testament that uh, so long later in a completely different context there's still something attractive about just basically how the yeah. symbols look. Mm-hmm. You know. And right. it was obviously like, uh, you know, not not some generic swastika, to, just to be clear about it. It was because it was these Nazi-style uh, Second World War helmets with oh, yeah. swastika and with other Nazi symbols. So it was not like this uh, uh, Hindu symbol or anything like that. It was very clearly uh, right. Nazi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen them in my time as well. Um, so... Um, Summarizing your just your background and your overall experience in Myanmar, you were introduced to me by by Igor Blazovich, who we just did a, a published. He's a great with. guy, by the way, Igor. He, he's really <laughs> incredibly committed to mm. Burma, to democracy movement in uh, Burma, and um, we, I think, uh, did a great job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he, in introducing you to me, he referenced you as someone who stands outside the normal type of diplomat and ambassador, someone who truly loves Myanmar, the country and its people. And so I wanted to reference this and speak to your deep connection to these people and these struggles. And going off of Igor's quote to inquire what is it about you've you've been all around the world you've served in all kinds of posts and uh referencing igor's comment here there's something about what you found in burma that has grabbed or held you in a place uh, grabbed grabbed or held you like other places have not and so i'm wondering what it was about burma among all the countries you've been that managed to get that hold that still remains to today this incredible uh, commitment uh, to the cause of uh, freedom and uh, democracy were really, uh, I mean, people were risking so much and they were still like doing it, you know, they were still still fighting and uh, risking their lives, risking, uh, risking decades in uh, prison or in the ethnic areas also um, uh, risking their very uh, lives. So it was like um, uh, this kind of uh, admirable commitment uh, to the cause and uh, despite like all these circumstances and uh, despite the odds, you know, they, 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 that was quite admirable. And at the same time, I know uh, this, and, but at the same time, combined with a, um, uh, I think there was a, like, uh, lack of hatred. I didn't feel like really hatred, you know, people just wanted to be free, but didn't necessarily mean they hated the, adversary you know that that was like yeah. it was a very uh, havelian you know this kind of mm-hmm. attitude uh, 
so that that uh, I, I think it was like the the uh, thoughts and uh, kind of approach of Václav Havel in the practice, but like uh, uh, in the uh, in another part of the world, if you know if you know what I mean. Yeah, I absolutely do. And that's and going back to what you referenced before about the international community's reaction and response to the coup, I think this is what makes it all the more heartbreaking is that uh, this is a country I've spent 15 years in and I, I have deep connections with, with the people as well and, and what they're going through. And I think this is what makes it so tragic is these people are risking so much, not just now, but over the course of lifetimes and generations and, and now probably more than any time before. And they're risking this to stand up for these things that we not only enjoy freely in most our societies, but that our entire governments are supposedly uh, behind and and, uh, and and supportive of, and yet they've received almost nothing uh, in in their struggle, and and they've continued to risk everything to try to achieve these democracy and human rights and create an equitable society and moving on from this tyrannical and corrupt society that's ruled them before and, and caused so much oppression and harm. And to see them burdening so much of this struggle on their own now as, as the world, for whatever reason, has not come to its aid and somewhat turned its back, it's um, I kind of oscillate between the inspiration and the resilience that we're seeing from them and just the shame and the the misfortune that they are not getting the support and wondering what one can do, however small I might be or my platform or anyone listening that feels just as small themselves, what can be done to try to change that and bring more support and solidarity, even at whatever level it is, at whatever measure it is to show they're not alone and that their their struggle is something that is inspiring and supportive by so many freedom-loving people around the world. Yeah, I mean, we definitely need to do more. Uh, I, I don't have like a recipe. We talked about some maybe controversial ways uh, how to help but uh, of course there is uh, many other things that can be done uh, more humanitarian uh, help uh, if uh, people don't want to deliver weapons they can always deliver medical uh, equipment there can be more targeted uh, sanctions there of mm. course uh, uh, many ways how international community uh, could help but uh, the problem is that uh, talking about the international community uh, uh, I mean it's unlikely that uh, like countries like uh, United States or Australia or uh, the uh, European Union uh, can uh, finally solve the issue. It's also a question for uh, neighboring countries, for India, for ASEAN member states. Uh, and uh, it's kind of a set uh, to see them not to do anything. Yeah. So in closing, and, and I, I'd like to ask you, and hopefully not put you on the spot too much with this question, as you uh, recollect from your memories, but you have been in Myanmar many times. You've spent many years there, uh, held several different posts. 
And I think through your experiences, you have a very unique insight and, and interaction through your particular involvement that myself and many listeners didn't have. You met with many people, you saw many different parts of the society. And so I'm wondering if there's some kind of anecdote you can close out with, something that comes to mind. And again, I don't want to put you on the spot so much. You have obviously so many to choose from and so many uh, um, you you interacted with people at different levels. Well, it's not, it's not an uh, anecdote, but maybe like uh, I always like to see in all these kind of a, sometimes desperate looking situations is always so encouraging to see moments where you see that somehow people survived and they reconstructed their lives you know i mentioned the representative of the uh, of the uh, 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 government of the national unity in Prague, Lintant is a guy who spent decades in prison who was condemned to uh, death who uh, uh, had big health issues because of that, who managed somehow after decades of imprisonment to escape to Thailand. And this guy uh, married happily. He has children. Uh, he's raising them. He's representing the democratic uh, forces. So he somehow kind of survived <laughs> and uh, despite being condemned to death, you know, there is like a life and his children, there is future and he works uh, for the future of, of, uh, of Myanmar. Or when I was once visited the, uh, for the first time when I visited the uh, current state, uh, I think it was 2009 or something like that, uh, like uh, uh, via uh, Thai border. I spent Christmas in one of the current uh, 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 villages, and they were so hospitable and so nice, you know. But then, uh, years later, this village was destroyed and burned by the Burma army, and somehow. Uh, it made me angry uh, back then and uh, with uh, some like friends and organizations and uh, with the help of Free Burma Rangers and others, we decided that this village will live again. So uh, we collected money uh, in the Czech Republic from different organizations and the village was rebuilt and reconstructed and it exists uh, uh, again. So uh, there are many villages uh, like that, and there are many people uh, from uh, around the world uh, helping. So there is like, uh, despite all this uh, destruction, there is always uh, hope, you know, and there is uh, always future. I think that's a great story to end on. And, and thank you for sharing that. And thank you for coming on and talking about your wealth of experience and reflections. Oh, there are like many things that could be uh, said, but uh, I think the, the, uh, I would like to end with uh, uh, this idea of hope, which was also like a central uh, idea or guideline for uh, of uh, Havel, you might know that uh, he signed always his name in uh, green, you know, uh, with, with a green pen, and he mm. added always a red 
heart to it. And once he told me that he uh, does that because uh, the heart represents uh, like a, a passion uh, and the green color represents hope. So uh, we have always hope for the best and do things with passion. And that's uh, uh, the idea I would like to uh, conclude with. Mm, well, thank you. Thank you. That's a good thing to keep in mind now. And thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. Thank you for inviting me. After today's discussion, it should be clear to everyone just how dire the current situation is in Myanmar. We're doing our best to shine a light on the ongoing crisis, and we thank you for taking time to listen. If you found today's talk of value, please consider passing it along to friends in your network. And please also consider letting them know that there is now a way to give that supports the most vulnerable, and to those who are especially impacted by the military's organized state terror. Any donations given to our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, will go towards those vulnerable communities being impacted by the coup. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, internally displaced person IDP camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.
Yeah, yeah.